Right, welcome back, everyone, and welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. Behave yourselves over there. Uh, this is our final panel of the day uh, on the impact of loving on uh, LGBTQ rights, and our, our moderator for the panel is Professor Micah Schwartzman. Uh, Micah is a double who, except for the time he spent cheating on UVA at Oxford um, as a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, he graduated from the law school um, and uh, has an undergraduate degree as well. Um, and he is a, an expert in constitutional law, um, religious liberty, and um, will be the perfect moderator for this panel. So I will turn it over to Professor Schwartzman and he will uh, conduct the panel as he sees fit. Um, thanks, Carrie. Uh, so uh, I want to welcome all of you to this panel on Loving's Promise for the LGBT. Uh, community, and uh, I'll briefly introduce the panelists. Um, their full bios are uh, in the booklet for the symposium, so you can read more about them there. Um, to my right is Douglas Nijame, who is professor of law at Yale Law School. Um, I guess our other panelists will be joining us after uh, Doug's PowerPoint presentation. Holding Lau is uh, the Willie Person Magnum uh, Distinguished Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Faculty Development at the University of North Carolina School of Law. And Catherine Smith is Professor of Law and Associate Dean of Institutional Diversity and Inclusiveness at the University of Denver um, Strum College of Law. Uh, I want to welcome them. My job here will be um, simply to keep time, I, and I will try to do that um, and uh, with the aim of providing all of you some opportunity for question and answers um, at the end of our panelists' comments. So with that, I'll turn it over to Doug. Thanks. Thanks to Micah for... Uh uh, moderating our panel. Um, thanks to Carrie for inviting me, uh, to Angela for conceptualizing this with Carrie, uh, and to the students uh, and staff who have uh, organized this, and especially to Natalie who has um, responded quickly to everything to help coordinate uh, my own getting here. Uh, I'm actually not presenting a, a paper, but instead I'm going to present some data uh, from my colleagues at the Williams Institute. Uh, the nice thing about this panel is Catherine Holning and I all uh, actually probably met each other in many ways through Williams Institute work and have affiliations. The Williams Institute is a research institute at UCLA that focuses on questions of sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, so I guess I want to make explicit something um, that has been below the surface a little bit uh, in today's uh, panels, which is that we're talking about loving and a decision that um, brings marriage access to interracial couples, and yet, um, as has been alluded to, uh, marriage is on the decline in U.S. society, and so the number of people who have been married has gone down significantly. Uh, and there's also a contemporary critique of marriage on uh, grounds of racial and class-based equality. And so it's interesting to think about the LGBT fight for marriage in context of that, that as um, marriage uh, becomes less salient to American family life in many ways, the LGBT struggles uh, privileges marriage as uh, a mode of family formation, and Melissa and Catherine and others in this room have offered um, really uh, uh, insightful critiques of that move. And so I want us to be thinking about what marriage in the same-sex couple population might look like, and in order to do so, I think we have to keep in mind a lot of cross-cutting considerations. And so what I'm trying to do is open up more questions than provide answers, and uh, make uh, uh, clear that there's differences along grounds of race, ethnicity, gender, uh, class, 
uh, and pay attention to differences in marital status and also to preview a little bit of what the substantive remarks Catherine will offer talk about parenting as well. I'm not addressing legal or constitutional questions, even though my, my own work has been taking up um, equality and liberty stakes, uh, specifically in the domain of parental recognition. And this project uh, can be traced in part to the equality and liberty reasoning that uh, we see in Loving, but I'm just going to focus on uh, the data. So the data is coming from the Williams Institute. Um, here are some of the papers uh, and studies that I'm using. Uh, and this work is available on the website of the Williams Institute. One big limitation is that we actually don't have great post-Obergefell data. Uh, and so a lot of this is 2013, 14, and 15 data uh, rather than more recent. But hopefully, uh, uh, well, it's actually completely unclear given the current administration what kind of data we're going to get from census. But, um, but the hope is we will have data that tells us something. I'm going to focus first on same-sex couples and then on um, uh, same-sex parenting. Uh, so when we look at same-sex couples, uh, we see that the number of married same-sex couples has gone up as marriage recognition became available to same-sex couples, so that shouldn't be surprising to us. Uh, and uh, here we see uh, the number of same-sex couples, but also the density of same-sex couples. So the darker blue, the county, uh, the higher density of same-sex couple households in that county. Uh, and this probably maps on to what uh, you might imagine the map to be. So you see uh, higher concentrations in places like the Northeast uh, and the West Coast, also uh, Alaska and Hawaii. Um, I should note before moving on that individuals and same-sex couples are more than two times uh, as likely to partner with individuals of another race or ethnicity as compared to people in different sex couples. But the same kind of interracial pairing uh, patterns that we see in the different sex couple population, we also see in the same sex couple population. And that is that um, whites are the least likely to partner interracially and Asian Americans are the most likely to partner interracially. So this is the map of same sex uh, couple households. This is the map of same-sex couples with an African-American householder. Um, so one individual, in the, at least one individual in the same-sex couple um, here identifying as African-American. So what do you know from this map? That African-American same-sex couples tend to live in areas where there are higher proportions of African-Americans generally. Um, it's also worth noting that almost 60% of African-American same-sex couples are female. Uh, which is different than looking at the general African-American, uh, general same-sex couple population. Uh, and African-American female same-sex couples report household income $20,000 lower uh, than African-American male same-sex couples. So we see a gap uh, in household income across the same-sex couple population based on gender. Um, one thing just to note, uh, female same-sex couples, uh, women in female same-sex couples have higher incomes than women in different sex couples, um, but female same-sex couples have lower income, household income, than different sex couples and that male same-sex couples have. And so that, of course, is um, uh, the interaction of a gender wage gap. Um, and when you put, even if because of participation in the labor market, women in same-sex couples have higher incomes than women in different sex couples. When you put two women together, you get the pay uh, gap operating in a way that disadvantages that couple. When you put two men together, you're getting the doubling of the privilege of the male wage gap. So here's race and ethnicity of individuals in same-sex and different sex couples. 
And I broke this down along marital status. So one thing that we've seen in the different sex couple population is a racial gap uh, with respect to uh, who's marrying. But at this point, we haven't seen that in the same-sex couple population. So the racial ethnic uh, makeup of the married and unmarried couple populations actually look very similar. We're also not getting as stark a financial gap between married and unmarried uh, couples in the same-sex couple population um, as compared to the different-sex couple population. You'll also note that same-sex couples, on average, tend to be doing better than the uh, different sex couple population. Again, we're talking about the couple population as measured through census data. So we're not talking about the LGBT individual population. Um, LGBT people are more likely to be living in poverty than non-LGBT people. But generally, even in the LGBT population, you see a high, higher skews at the top and bottom. So we can turn from um, same-sex couples generally to uh, same-sex couples with children. And here's our, where I think we actually get into data that opens up some interesting questions for us going forward. Remember, this is the map of same-sex couples in the US um, and the density. Uh, and then this is the map of same-sex couples raising children. So these maps don't look alike. Uh, and instead, the density of same-sex couples raising children uh, is um, much higher in places that you might not anticipate, like the South. Uh, Alaska somehow still manages to be uh, high on both. Um, so same-sex couples are still, at this point, more likely to be raising children from previous different-sex relationships. About one in three individuals in same-sex couples raising children are people of color. Racial ethnic minority individuals in same-sex couples are more likely to have children uh, as compared to uh, white individuals in same-sex couples. And if we look at the percentage of same-sex couples with an African-American householder raising children, own children as defined by this study, but that can include a range of ways in which the child comes into the household, um, you actually see um, that, uh, again, just as we saw that the density uh, of same-sex couple population with an African-American householder was highest in areas where African-American households would be highest. You see that with um, uh, child rearing as well. So one way to actually put this together that will make some sense of it is to look at, well, where are the places in which we have the highest density of same-sex couples? Where are the places in which we have the highest density of same-sex couples with an African-American householder? And where are the places where we have the highest density of same-sex couples raising children? The states with the highest percentage of same-sex couples is not the same as either the states with the highest percentage of same-sex couples with an African-American householder or the states with the highest percentage of same-sex couples or highest density of same-sex couples raising children. And the states, those states actually look quite similar. So you see overlap between um, households with an African-American uh, householder and same-sex couples raising children. Now, this is similar to the slide I put up with um, couples looking at the difference in marital status uh, and race, but this is for same-sex and different-sex couples raising children. And one thing we've seen in the heterosexual identified population is that um, the marriage gap also um, tracks a racial ethnic gap. Uh, and we've also seen uh, that 
child rearing uh, is um, happening across married and unmarried couples. We'll see that in a moment. But here you note that, again, for same-sex couples raising children, there isn't a very significant racial ethnic gap between married and unmarried. So this, the, the combination of these slides should be alerting us to something that marriage might be operating differently in the same-sex couple population, at least at this very early point, than we've seen it operating in the different-sex couple population. We do have higher rates, as I said, of child rearing among racial ethnic minorities as compared to whites. 34% um, of African-American same-sex couples are raising children. Um, we also, as you might predict, see a difference in sex in terms of um, uh, how same-sex couples raising children. So um, married and unmarried uh, female same-sex couples are more likely to be raising children than male same-sex couples. And that gender gap exists across racial ethnic uh, groups. So same-sex couples are less likely than different-sex couples to be raising children. Um, but again, so here you see uh, the rates of child-rearing among different-sex couples are actually quite similar across married and unmarried. But we don't see that for same-sex couples. So even though the rates are lower across the board, we see that same-sex couples, at least at this point, seem more likely to be pairing parenting with marriage um, uh, than uh, with non-marriage. As you might predict, same-sex couples are much more likely to be raising adopted or foster children than different-sex couples. And the inverse of this means that same-sex couples are less likely to be raising biological children uh, than uh, different-sex couples. Same-sex couples at this point are raising children with uh, greater means. So we saw the earlier data around the same-sex and different-sex couple population. Uh, that was just the general couple population. When broken down to same-sex couples raising children, uh, you again see that they're doing so uh, with higher median household income than their different-sex counterparts and a less substantial gap between the married and unmarried couple population. There's still, obviously, a difference between the married and unmarried couple populations, but it's uh, less significant here. Um, there are differences by race and ethnicity, with lower household incomes for uh, African-American and Latino same-sex couples as compared to their white and Asian-American counterparts. Um, and there's differences by sex, as we've seen, uh, male same-sex couples doing better than female same-sex couples. All of this data speaks to the importance of uh, having an agenda that centers not just on sexual orientation and gender identity, but also on race, sex, and class, and understanding uh, the ways in which those different identity characteristics are interacting um, in uh, producing some of what we're seeing here. So uh, overall, same-sex couples are more likely to be raising children inside marriage as compared to uh, different sex couples. Uh, and they don't exhibit the same racial and economic gaps that we've observed in uh, different sex couples. So marriage seems to be less constitutive of a race and class divide, um, or the, the minimal thing that can be said is it's more about class than race, it seems, at this point. And it tells us something, I think, about family formation and where we are at this particular moment. So same-sex couples um, 
engage in intentional form of family formation when they're forming same-sex couple-headed uh, households. Um, biological reproduction matters to how marriage will figure uh, in the lives of families with children. And so what we're seeing in the heterosexual identified population is um, marriage, marriages decreasing salience, um, but continued child rearing. And child rearing happening um, sometimes, right, what opponents of marriage equality refer to as the spontaneous procreation arguments. Um, we actually see, well, what relevance does that kind of descriptive observation have in looking at the difference between the populations? Um, and we see that same-sex couples obviously are not spontaneously procreating in these ways. And so um, we might expect the same-sex couple population to engage in a kind of deliberate family formation in which they are pairing marriage, a step seen as um, cementing a family commitment, with uh, child rearing. And so that might go to why we're seeing the disparity in marital status, married and unmarried, for same-sex couples raising children that we don't see in, um, un, uh, in different-sex couples raising children. It might also explain some of the economic uh, data that we're seeing. Uh, so the fact that same-sex couples are viewing child-rearing as something that requires substantial only done after acquiring or feeling confident about some uh, financial resources. It's likely the case that those, so we don't have good data on this yet, it is likely the case that those families engaged in intentional family formation through joint adoption or through assisted reproductive technologies like donor insemination, IVF, and gestational surrogacy, surely it's the case that they would have higher incomes than their counterparts, and it's likely the case um, that they're also more white. So I think the, the really, sort of important point where we are right now is to think about how same-sex parenting is changing over time and what that means for questions of marriage, race, and class within the same-sex couple population. So this might surprise some people, but the number of same-sex couples, percentage of same-sex couples raising children is going down, right? We wouldn't, from the popular imagination of seeing same-sex couple-headed households, think that, um, but as fewer same-sex couples are raising children from previous different-sex relationships, um, and more same-sex family formation is happening through adoption and assisted reproductive technologies, that second group is not going to be enough to make up the difference from the previous heterosexual relationships that yield children. And so as that shift happens, which is, we're, we're in the midst of it right now in the population, um, we actually might see the map I showed earlier change, and the density of same-sex couples raising children uh, might move from places like South Carolina and Florida and Oklahoma to places like Washington, D.C., New York, and California. Um, and that's going to have implications for thinking about what role marriage and child-rearing play in a social justice agenda that includes but isn't limited to questions of LGBT equality. So I'll stop there. Thanks. Hey everyone, thank you for sticking around for the last panel. Thank you to the conference organizers, especially Carrie, Angela, Natalie, and Allie for convening this fantastic symposium and for including me. It's a privilege to be here exchanging ideas with such distinguished colleagues. 
In my presentation, I want to consider Loving alongside Obergefell and situate that comparison in, a context of, in the context of a discussion about the relationship between discriminatory intent and discriminatory effects. So I think my presentation is building on some of the discussions that um, we began before lunch with Kim's presentation and Angela's presentation. Um, in evaluating whether a particular action ought to, be, ought to be condemned as impermissible discrimination, how important is it to look at the intentions behind the action? And how important is it to look at the action's effects? I hope to use a comparative analysis of Loving and Obergefell to shed light on these questions. There has been a great deal of commentary on the similarities between Obergefell and Loving. Indeed, as many of today's panelists have noted, Obergefell struck down bans on same-sex marriage by building, in part, upon precedent it had set in Loving. Loving was an important precursor to Obergefell. Yet Obergefell's reasoning also deviates from that of, uh, of Loving. And one difference is their assignment of significance to the intention behind laws versus the impact of laws. While Loving focused on the invidious intentions behind the law under attack, Obergefell focused on the deleterious adverse effects of the law under attack, the same-sex marriage bans. My presentation today will proceed in two parts. First, I will draw out this distinction between Loving's and Obergefell's analyses. And second, I will examine the significance of this shift for thinking about equal protection more generally beyond these two cases. So let's start with Loving, the centerpiece of today's symposium. As we all know by now, the Supreme Court found that Virginia's anti-miscegenation law discriminated based on race. The state of Virginia had claimed that the law actually did not discriminate based on race because of the so-called equal application rationale, but the Supreme Court rejected the idea that equal application of racial categories could shield the race-based law from rigorous judicial scrutiny. Moreover, the court stated that the anti-miscegenation law was indeed a form of invidious race discrimination because the law stemmed from invidious intentions. The court emphasized that Virginia's anti-miscegenation law was, quote, designed to maintain white supremacy, end quote, and was obviously an endorsement of the doctrine of white supremacy, which we've talked a lot about so far. In other words, the state of Virginia enacted its anti-miscegenation law with the intention of perpetuating racial hierarchy. This invidious intention was a focal point of loving. Note that while the court focused on the purpose behind Virginia's anti-miscegenation statute, it said virtually nothing about the harmful effects of the law. And one might argue that, the law, that a law intended to perpetuate racial hierarchy will likely have harmful discriminatory effects. Um, so those effects are implied. Still, Loving did not address these effects explicitly. It didn't openly acknowledge it. And the Loving op opinion certainly did not examine the effects of uh, the anti-miscegenation law, the way that Obergefell opinion later would um, deal with the effects of law nearly three decades later. All right, so now we could turn to Obergefell versus Hodges. Like in Loving, the court in Obergefell concluded that the laws under attack, that is to say same-sex marriage bans, were discriminatory. Obergefell viewed same-sex marriage bans as discrimination based on sexual orientation. And for most Americans, I think this idea that same-sex marriage bans discriminate based on sexual orientation is uncontroversial and intuitive, right? However, I want us as legal scholars to think through what that means. What does it mean to say that a same-sex marriage ban constitutes discrimination? The Obergefell opinion was not very clear in, in explaining why same-sex marriage bans constitute discrimination based on sexual orientation. And this is perhaps not surprising because I think Oberg Obergefell lacks clarity in quite a few different regards. Um, 
But while Obergefell wasn't clear in terms of what it says, I think it's much clearer in terms of what it does. I submit that if we look at what Obergefell did and did not do, the best reading of Obergefell says that same-sex marriage bans were discriminatory because of their effects, not because of the intentions behind the bans, and not because of any technical analysis of formal classification schemes that same-sex marriage bans embody. So let's walk through a process of elimination. Let's look first at what Obergefell did not do. There are a few conceptualizations of discrimination that the court could have adopted, but the court either rejected these alternative frameworks or simply ignored them. First, the court did not conceptualize discrimination in terms of invidious intent, like in loving. To the extent that Obergefell did engage in any discussion about the intentions behind same-sex marriage bans, it absolved the ban's proponents of blame, noting that, quote, many who deem same-sex marriage to be wrong reach that conclusion based on decent and honorable religious or philosophical premises. In speaking about the exclusion of same-sex couples from marriage, the court also stated that, quote, the nature of injustice is that we may not always see it in our own times, end quote. And I think this statement implies that the state's traditional exclusion of same-sex couples from marriage was probably not consciously motivated by a desire to harm and subordinate gays and lesbians because the traditional definition of marriage came about during a time when there was no consciousness of hierarchy between gays and straights as identity categories. There's a striking contrast between Obergefell and Loving when it comes to their analyses of intentions. Loving said that legislators designed Virginia's anti-miscegenation law to consciously maintain racial hierarchy. Obergefell said nothing of that sort. We can also contrast Obergefell with Windsor, in which the court struck down part of the, the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, um, and Windsor explicitly stated that DOMA was motivated by animus, that it was intended to perpetuate a hierarchy based on sexual orientation. Obergefell, however, included no such focus on intentions. Obergefell's absolution of same-sex marriage ban's proponents might have stemmed in part to the backlash against Windsor, um, versus United States. Critics, including the dissenting justices in Windsor, strongly recoiled at the suggestion that opposition to same-sex marriage is rooted in bigoted intentions. And perhaps this backlash is one reason why the majority in Obergefell did not ascribe invidious intentions to opponents of same-sex marriage and instead described the opponents of same-sex marriage as coming from a place of decency and honor. Let's continue along our process of elimination. In Obergefell, the court could have conceptualized discrimination in terms of facial classifications, but the court didn't take this approach. As many people have pointed out, same-sex marriage bans facially discriminate on the basis of sex. In other words, when the law limits marriage to relationships between one man and one woman, this creates overt sex-based classifications. As such, same-sex marriage bans discriminate facially on the basis of sex. And commentators have also argued that the sex discrimination analysis is further bolstered by the fact that same-sex marriage bans reflect and reinforce gender stereotypes. Some courts have endorsed the sex discrimination analysis. For example, in the landmark Hawaii case of Bear v. Lewin, the first major courtroom victory for same-sex couples seeking marriage rights, the Supreme Court of Hawaii concluded that limiting marriage to different sex couples amounted to sex discrimination. As pointed out earlier, however, Obergefell was silent on same-sex marriage bans embodiment of overt sex-based categories. The court also could have explained that same-sex marriage bans create a facial distinction between same-sex and different-sex couples, thus amounting to sexual orientation discrimination, but the court did not do that. 
the court did not focus on the formal categories embodied in same-sex marriage bans. To be clear, I think same-sex marriage bans do not create a facial distinction between gays and lesbians as individuals. Indeed, opponents of same-sex marriage have long argued that these bans on same-sex marriage are facially neutral with respect to sexual orientation because they prohibit um, both gay and straight individuals from marrying partners of the same sex. And meanwhile, both gay and straight individuals alike have the right to marry someone of the opposite sex. Very um, unsatisfying, right? <laughs> if you're just sticking to the formalities. But as a formal matter, you know, um, there may be something to be said, that, said there. And the equal application analysis is slightly different here um, because it's an equal application of a sex category. But I'll put that aside for now. Anyway, as a strictly formal matter, this analysis is correct that same-sex marriage bans technically do not facially discriminate between individuals based on sexual orientation. However, same-sex marriage bans do facially classify couples, distinguishing different-sex couples from same-sex couples. And some courts have explained that formal classification of couples is itself a type of discrimination. A good example of this comes from our neighbor to the north, um, uh, Ontario. In the same-sex marriage case of Halpern versus Attorney General of Canada, the Ontario Court of Appeal explained that excluding same-sex couples from marriage, quote, constitutes a formal distinction between opposite sex and same-sex couples, end quote, amounting to sexual orientation discrimination. Likewise, in a state court opinion from Oregon, uh, um, the court once remarked that a law denying marital benefits from same-sex couples was discriminatory. And that court noted, however, the law did not discriminate categorically against gays and lesbians. Instead, that law, uh, the protected class in that case, consisted of unmarried homosexual couples. But Obergefell did not take this tack of really going through this formalistic, technical analysis of classification schemes. It did not focus on these formal distinctions between same-sex couples and different-sex couples. It certainly did not say that the protected class of uh, people in the case was just same-sex couples. Instead, the Obergefell opinion drew attention to same-sex marriage bans harms, its deleterious adverse effects not only on the lives of same-sex couples, but also on the children of same-sex couples, and on the gay and lesbian communities more generally, not just those who wish to marry. The court explained that same-sex marriage bans inflict tangible harms, such as financial insecurity upon same-sex couples and their children. The court further explained that barring same-sex marriage demeans and disrespects and subordinates gays and lesbians generally. Indeed, Obergefell supports a conceptualization of discrimination that is centered on the ways that the laws at issue affect lived experiences in unequal ways. The focus was on the impact of these marriage bans um, and not on the invidiousness of their underlying um, motivations. To be sure, as someone pointed out earlier, the court in Obergefell spent a lot of time linking its analysis of liberty and equality, noting that same-sex couples had been deprived a uh, fundamental right. The Obergefell opinion spent more time linking the liberty and equality analysis than the Loving opinion did. I think this linkage comports with my claim that the court is concerned about discriminatory effects, the way that laws affect people. The court's attention to liberty is essentially an attention to the impact of laws by recognizing that a fundamental liberty was at stake and not just garden variety, liberty interest, Obergefell underscored the gravity of same-sex marriage bans consequences. The consequences of taking that away or excluding people from um, that fundamental liberty. 
Moreover, instead of mechanistically stating that infringing fundamental rights trigger strict scrutiny, the court elaborated on the ways that denying same-sex couples of the fundamental right is harmful. So in sum, I read Obergefell's equal protection analysis as not focusing on the purposes and the intentions behind laws, but really focus in, not focusing on formal classifications, right? Rather, it focused on the consequences, the effects, and the impact of same-sex marriage bans. So now let me turn to the significance of Obergefell giving primacy to these effects, the impacts, right, the consequences. And here I want to make three points. First, I want to endorse as a normative matter this focus on effects. I won't go into this in detail because so much has already been written on why we ought to focus on effects, um, but in a nutshell, I think a legal system that focuses on intentions is underprotective because intentions are too easy to conceal. I also think intention-based um, legal system is unprotected, is underprotective because so much objectionable discrimination inequality is unconscious and therefore cannot be mapped onto discriminatory intents. As a comparativist, I'm also persuaded by experiences abroad. So many reputable jurisdictions abroad define discrimination in terms of law's effects. For example, in jurisdictions like Canada, South Africa, the Council of Europe, Hong Kong, Government action can be unconstitutional if it has an adverse effect on a particular social group, even if the government action is facially neutral, and even if it's not marred by discriminatory intent. These foreign jurisdictions call this sort of discrimination indirect discrimination that is unconstitutional. And for anyone who wants to hear more from this about this comparative perspective, I point you to an article that I wrote that just came out in the Fordham Law Review. <laughs> Um, my second point uh, regarding the significance of Obergefell is a doctrinal one. Obergefell's focus on dis uh, discriminatory kind of effects, the impacts of laws, I think casts doubt on a line of cases, Washington v. Davis and its progeny, which state that a facially neutral law that creates a disparate impact does not count as discrimination for con law purposes at least, no, um, no matter how egregious that impact is unless it's clear that the law was motivated, motivated by invidious intent. There's a tension here between those cases and Obergefell. And to be very clear, Obergefell did not explicitly address those earlier disparate impact cases, and Obergefell certainly did not announce a new rule that would replace the doctrine from Washington v. Davis, Massachusetts versus Feeney, et cetera. With that said, I believe there is a normative principle that is beginning to emerge that's embedded in Obergefell, which elevates the significance of analyzing impact, and that normative principle calls into doubt the logic of Washington v. Davis and its progeny, and we ought to connect those dots. And to be very clear, I recognize that this is very like, early, like, <laughs> and we don't have that many dots to work with, um, but I want to connect Obergefell to those earlier line of cases and problematize them this way. My third and final point is that while I think the court ought to reform its equal protection doctrine on disparate impact, it's far from clear that it will actually do that. So I'm pessimistic as well. <laughs> uh, yes, I think there's a tension and inconsistency between what we're seeing in Obergefell and the Washington v. Davis line of cases, but unfortunately I don't know that the court will actually do anything about it. Some commentators have suggested that there's a blind spot, that the court seems to be very comfortable with the gap between its progressive in the context of sexual orientation and the context of race. 
So it's not clear that the court will take a principle that's beginning to merge, at least in a nascent form, in Obergefell and cultivate it in other contexts, such as race discrimination. I do think that it would be very unfortunate if the court chooses not to further develop its analysis of discriminatory effects and impact and consequences. And my symposium essay aims, at the very least, to further conversa conversations about the relevance of discriminatory effects. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you all for uh, sticking with us. Uh, so I, uh, too, want to thank the conference organizers and um, uh, Carrie and Angela and Natalie and, and Allie and the students, the other students on the journal. Uh, it's really been an amazing conference and, and really challenging. And, and uh, so I look forward to uh, having a, a, a rousing discussion in the, in the Q&A session. Um, in some ways, I think my talk is, is it really overlaps with uh, both uh, uh, Doug and, and Holding's points. Um, Holding talked about there are not a lot of dots uh, in terms of uh, piecing together what this LGBT rights framework looks like. And, and I agree with him in that it, it, it presents an opportunity. Um, and so I'm going to talk about that. Um, so in 2007, in honor of the 40th anniversary of Loving versus Virginia, um, I published an article called Queer's Black Folk, with a question mark. Uh, and it was a critique of the comparisons to, uh, of LGBT rights to racial civil rights as a strategy to change public opinion. Um, and, and I have to thank Angela, because she, she always seems to get me, uh, get me rip, ripped into to talking about loving and, and revisiting loving, and, and it's really been uh, amazing. She also organized or, or was central in organizing that conference on loving 10 years ago. Uh, and so to stand here today on the 50th anniversary uh, of loving, I think about what's occurred in just 10 years with respect to LGBT rights. I mean, it's, it's breathtaking. I mean, it, it's been so rapid. Um, and at the same time, I think about uh, this, the significant retrenchment, as many people have, have raised and discussed, uh, that we have experienced on racial grounds. And, um, and so I'm going to try and flesh that out a little bit and, and talk about opportunity in relation to both uh, LGBT rights and, and uh, the push for racial progress, and of course, issues at the intersection of those things. So my work in the past 10 years has focused on kids um, I've looked at the rights of children of, of LGBT parents, uh, and it, it was really spawned from my work on Queer as Black Folk, uh, which was to focus on how, how LGBT issues are intersectional. Uh, and so, thanks to Doug, we got an amazing, uh, uh, it, it kind of teed up my talk in some ways uh, about uh, who makes up this community, who makes up the LGBT community. And contrary to popular stereotypes, of the LGBT movement as white and affluent, uh, uh, it's, it's extremely diverse in many ways. And so I'm going to give you the data I have, and I'm hoping it lines up with Doug's. I'm sure he will be correcting me if, if it does not. Uh, it might be a bit dated. But uh, so for single LGBT individuals with children, there are three times more likely than non-LGBT individuals to live near the poverty level. Half of children under the 18 who live with same-sex couples are children of color. 
LGBT parents are four times more likely than uh, different sex parents to raise adopted children. In addition, more than half of the children adopted by LGBT parents have special needs. And, and I want to flag this. Um, how many of you, are, how many students are here, still here? I want to, I want to just say to you that, um, you know, I learned this as a professor, how valuable it is to uh, invite my students to help me in my research and to give me ideas and, and a diversity of, of viewpoints because that, that, that uh, uh, my research assistant who is really passionate about kids with disabilities and kids with special needs uh, was, was very instrumental in, in, in helping me understand that. Uh, you know, this is a part of, of having a diverse perspectives and thinking about what gets incorporated into to the work that we do. And so I just want to say to students that your voice matters. Um, in, in filing an amicus brief that we did in the Masterpiece case, uh, which I'll talk about, um, we, uh, she was really instrumental in, in providing information about the harms that might happen to kids whose parents, uh, who, whose parents are LGBT because private providers are the ones that provide most of the services for kids with special needs. And so once again, your voice matters, uh, your perspectives matter, and so please uh, don't shy away from telling us what you think. Um, and so pursuant to my work on LGBT rights and the rights of kids of same-sex couples and LGBT parents, I co-authored this amicus brief in Windsor, uh, co-authored a series of amicus briefs, one in Windsor, uh, one in Obergefell, which was cited by Kennedy, uh, uh, referencing the rights and interests of kids. Um, and my co-authors and I recently filed a brief in the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, now before the Supreme Court. Um, this is the case about a, a baker who refused to sell a wedding cake to a gay couple. And you might ask, well, this is, this is interesting, but what does it have to do with uh, loving? And uh, as you've heard the last two days, Loving's decision is celebrated as moving beyond formal equality and recognizing uh, white supremacy. It also found marriage to be a fundamental right, and it has been relied on uh, to advance other legal uh, uh, fundamental rights, uh, including uh, in Obergefell versus Hodges, which recognized same-sex couples' right to marry. In my view, Loving is, is, is also about uh, association discrimination. And association discrimination is a powerful tool of segregation. The United States is more segregated now than it was after Brown v. Board was decided. In large part, I think, that this is because association discrimination has been left untouched for the most part. Relationship or associational discrimination serves as a policing function. It's a policing function that affects, constricts, and regulates individuals and groups. And it's working. And in our brief in Masterpiece, we argue that a religious or First Amendment exemption to public accommodation law would result in the exclusion of children of LGBT parents based on their relation to or association with their parents. Children of LGBT parents have already experienced association discrimination before and since Obergefell. In Michigan, a pediatrician refused to treat an infant based solely on the fact that the child had lesbian mothers. In Kentucky, a judge refused to hear adoption cases of children involving LGBT adoptive parents-to-be. In Tennessee, a non-denominational private school rejected enrollment for a pre-kindergartner and his eight-month-old sister 
after discovering that the children had two dads. Should the court allow a religious or First Amendment exemption to sexual orientation discrimination, we will see much more. And, and people often ask, well, why? Like, how does, how does even, anybody even know that the kids have same-sex parents? And the reality is that until a child is of a certain age, uh, most of the things they do are through their parents. Uh, just think about it as if, for those of you who are parents, uh, or for those of you who are, who are not parents and, and uh, uh, were, were signed up for all sorts of camps and schools and, and classes or whatever it may be in your life, uh, who did that? And so the, the, the moment uh, a child of same-sex parents, uh, especially couples, um, uh, uh, is, is enrolled in anything, medical care, whatever it may be, it is flagged that they have uh, same-sex parents. Um, and, and so when it's salient, it matters, and they face association discrimination as a result of it. I would also add that the facts of the Masterpiece case actually illustrated uh, association discrimination against the mother of one of the plaintiffs. Uh, the baker denied Charlie Craig and David Mullen's service. He also refused to serve Deborah Munn, Craig's mom, and David's future mother-in-law. So in drafting the brief, um, I wasn't aware of any reported association discrimination cases by a kid of LGBT parents. Uh, and so I did what you would imagine. I looked to the race association discrimination cases. I expected a rich discussion of the individual and collective harms of association discrimination. What I found was textual ranging that left me unsatisfied. In these cases in which whites claimed they were discriminated against because of their relationship to or association with blacks or Latinos, the court focused on whether they were protected by the language of the federal statute being challenged. For example, Title VII prohibits, discrimination, uh, it prohibits employment discrimination quote, from the, from the statute, because of an individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, end quote. The opinions in these cases focused a great deal on that language, whether discrimination against a white employee for his associations with a black employee was, in fact, discrimination because of the white employee's race. That is all. Once the case is determined, that associational discrimination was actionable under Title VII or Section 1981 or whatever the, the federal statute was, there was little discussion about why associational discrimination is dangerous or harmful to individuals or society, much less connected to the power of policing whites and blacks or people of color who cross racial lines uh, in order to concentrate essentially white power in white spaces. And so in drafting the brief, I felt like I was at a crossroads. Um, I found myself at this, in this place uh, as an LGBT scholar, as a race scholar, as somebody who tries to think about the intersections of those issues. Should I rely on the race association cases? Or should I craft an argument using the policy rationales from Windsor and Obergefell? For the first time, when it came to the legal precedent or argument uh, in an LGBT rights case, there was a choice for me. I mean, just think about that. Um, uh, previously, in my critiques of, of the, the comparisons to race and sexual orientation, I made an exception. Uh, I said, except in legal precedent. I mean, if, you have a, if you're litigating and you have no other source, uh, you have to rely on the cases that, that make the most sense. Uh, and 10 years later, I was looking at this and saying, wow, there's a choice here. Um, which direction do I go in? And so instead of relying on the race associational cases, admittedly, I thought weren't 
that powerful, actually, in some ways. I turned to Windsor and Obergefell because those cases articulated what, what Holning uh, uh, really gave us a, a really wonderful discussion of, the effects. Uh, they focused on the harm to children of same-sex couples based on, even though the court doesn't characterize it this way, they focus on the harms based on their relationship to and association with their parents. Um, and so, uh, in reliance on Windsor and Obergefell, we track the language of those cases in our brief. Uh, and I will just give you a flavor of that. In Windsor, the Supreme Court expressed concern about the economic harm to children that resulted from a refusal to recognize their parents' marriages. The, quote, uh, the, the court says, quote, DOMA brings financial harm to children of same-sex couples. It raises the cost of health care for families by taxing health benefits provided by employers to their workers' same-sex spouses. And it denies or reduces benefits allowed to families upon the loss of a spouse and parent, benefits that are integral to family security. The court also voiced a concern for the psychological and stigmatic harm to children um, and their families resulting from the same refusal. I quote again, the, the differentiation between same-sex and opposite-sex couples humiliates tens of thousands of children now being raised by same-sex couples. The law in question makes it even more difficult for the children to understand the integrity and closeness of their own family and its concord with other families in their community and in their daily lives. In Obergefell, the court also similarly noted and really relied heavily on Windsor in citing these, 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 these passages. Um, and the court actually noted that the psychological injury to children from marriage bans may be more profound than the material ones. Um, and it often noted, uh, uh, repeatedly noted the injury to family formation uh, and to family integrity. So after submitting the brief, I had an opportunity to really reflect on, on uh, the experience of, of thinking about which path to take and what does it mean as an LGBT scholar and a race scholar. And, um, and, and it was a moment to recognize how far LGBT rights have come, even though the path to marriage was one rooted in prog both progressive and conservative principles, like many marriage cases, uh, including Loving versus Virginia. Uh, and, and you've heard those progressive and conservative, conservative critiques today and, and yesterday. Um, and the thing I just want to note is that they can all be true. Uh, they can coexist. And, and you know, uh, Nan Hunter, as, as mentioned in her work, uh, it's really what we do with these, these decisions uh, at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, it was also a moment to recognize once again how limited and underdeveloped the race law continues to be. And I think that uh, uh, Dean Chemerinsky referenced that in terms of the hostility to, to uh, post-Reconstruction and, and Jim Crow, that we haven't had a time to really uh, 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 engage in uh, uh, what race means in this country and, and race discrimination and how we, how we experience it or understand it. Um, but I do think that, and, and that might feel sort of depressing, but I do think that this, we have an opportunity uh, for an LGBT scholar, uh, for all I think LGBT scholars, it's time when feasible to move away from reliance on race precedent in order to advance it. To move away from it, from it in order to advance, and it sounds sort of contradictory, it doesn't make a lot of sense, um, but I'm gonna try and explain that. So, post Obergefell, um, I think it's time for us to, to really think about how LGBT causes must look to develop 
a framework that redefines the promise of the 14th Amendment that is more inclusive of people of color. I say this not only because of the diversity of the LGBT community, uh, I also say, this, also say this to encourage us to think about how legal doctrine and our arguments advance or do not advance racial progress. I think that we've, we've lost some ground in that respect um, in uh, Lawrence, Windsor, and Obergefell. These cases, while positive in outcome, in some ways establish that the more LGBT people look and behave according to an ideal white cis heterosexual norm, monogamy, two-parent model, one person for life. I'm sure you have lots of other, other thoughts in your mind that you could, you could plug in there. Um, um, the more we uh, LGBT people uh, reflect that norm, the more LGBT people are allowed access, access to equal rights, right? The more, and I felt that way from, from, the, from the opinions, the more you look like us, the more likely we are to, to, to let you in. Um, and I would remind that for the long game, that is detrimental to the LGBT movement. I also remind us that it is detrimental to racial progress because it is difficult for people of color to fully replicate white assimilation. I'd almost say it might not be possible in some ways. Um, uh, so uh, I think that's really key and I think it's really important for us to be thinking about uh, as we have this window. I think it's a window. I think it's gonna close. Uh, I think it's closed and it's closing for race, unfortunately. Um, and, and so we, we really have to think about how we, how we incorporate it. Right now, LGBT association claims have yet to be fully developed, right? So, so holding saying, you know, I know we have few dots, but that might be an opportunity. And, and I think that, that, that it, it's, it gives us a window to do more than to um, advance LGBT rights. Racial association discrimination as a tool of segregation leads to the concentration of power, economic resources, access to social mobility, and networks in white communities and white spaces. For those who have seen the movie or documentary of Loving, you could see the power of association discrimination in almost every scene, right? Almost every scene, uh, seeing this, this, this dynamic between uh, the, the husband uh, and, and his, his navigation in, in black spaces uh, and what that means to white people and the threat to, to whites uh, in white spaces. And, and you shall not cross this divide. Um, it makes me think of the, uh, from the Lord of the Rings. Um, I love this scene, but I, I kind of have, sorry I have this in my image in my mind of when uh, Gandalf goes down and he says, you shall not pass. That's what I feel like. That, that's what that is, is, is saying, right, uh, in white spaces. And, and in Loving, when you see that movie, you shall not pass. That's what they're saying is stop it. Okay, you can have, uh, uh, we, might, we not, might not consider illicit sex. We might turn a blind eye to that. But you cannot move into that space. And, and, and blacks cannot move into this space. Right? You shall not pass. And that concentrates power in the hands of people with it, 
whether white or um, uh, heterosexual uh, or you know whatever the power group is essentially but clearly we have a history and context here in terms of the concentration of power along racial lines and so um, that consequence is a policing function uh, most whites even those who would like to cross racial lines comply they are deterred from doing so by high or not so high consequences. In loving, we see the white person who is willing to defy that white mandate. What are other whites doing? What are other whites doing? What do you think? You can answer. They're probably knowingly or unknowingly complying, right? And that injures people of color. Yes, the Supreme Court might say it injures whites in some way, diversity rationale, right? Uh, but it injures people of color, I think more so, um, by far. And so for, for LGBT um, uh, scholars, we are in our infancy in understanding and theorizing racial association discrimination, much less association discrimination in the context of LGBT rights, right? I mean, all of us are in our, sorry, all of us are in infancy in, in understanding racial uh, association discrimination, much less discrimination on the basis of LGBT rights and association. And, and this may be demoralizing on all fronts. However, it's also an opportunity to theorize association discrimination in a different way. Um, it serves as a policing function that continues to reinforce power. It does so in the context of race, and it does so in the context of LGBT discrimination. Um, as LGBT scholars or advocates, we should keep our eye to pushing a more robust vision of these claims to chart the individual and collective harms of association discrimination, one that, if accepted, can later serve future race claims. So I look forward to your comments. So thank you to our panelists uh, who uh, have been gracious in their um, keeping to time, which means we have about half an hour for Q&A. So I'm happy to take questions. Um, and you should ask them, because otherwise I'll have to do it. I'm sure your questions will be better. Yes. So um, I think I have two responses. First, when I'm focusing on the effects of the law, two things. One is first that I, I've been situating that analysis in this threshold question of whether or not there's any discrimination and not necessarily the justification for discrimination. And I, I, I totally accept that there are some difficulties in evaluating the effects of laws. Likewise, I think there's a lot of difficulty in evaluating and discerning what are the intentions behind laws. And if it's that relative kind of trade-off, I think we may have more to work with when looking at the effects of laws or other state actions. And I think um, we could look to, as the comparativist, you know, how other countries have been doing this. And uh, I won't go into great detail, but um, you know, I think at least there are two dimensions that we're seeing um, 
we could look at the qualitative aspect of how harmful the discrimination is, right? Like, what are we, what is the particular social group being deprived of, right? And like, we see that in Obergefell, right? Um, interestingly, I think we could also look to Justice O'Connor's concurring opinion in Lawrence versus Texas, where she said that the uh, sodomy ban discriminates based on sexual orientation. And she, she kind of got to like, why? Because people said it's, it's actually facially neutral. And she said that there's such a close correlation between um, a sodomy ban and, um, and sexual orientation identity categories that she would consider that sexual orientation. So there's also a potential of this kind of quantitative analysis as well. So there's a qualitative aspect, a quantitative aspect. Where to set kind of the bar, though, for um, I think is a difficult one. And I, I could talk about this forever, but, but I think one way that we might address those difficulties is also to be more flexible in recognizing that there is a sliding scale, and then this would require reforming the way that we look at equal protection more generally and being more comfortable with um, balancing, right? So balancing what were the intentions behind the law and the effects of the law with whatever the purported justifications are. Can I just say, so, I mean, there's a way in which effects is being talked about as an assessment of concrete outcomes, but I think there's also effects, which is in Obergefell and Holding discusses about the law's meaning. So it's instead of focusing on the intent, it's to focus on the meaning of the law, which includes sort of things like denigration, which I don't think we ask a court then. So we might have institutional competence concerns about a court's ability to assess the social meaning of a law, but it seems like a different question than their ability to, to assess concrete impacts as opposed to understanding that a law's meaning um, is relevant to the question of discrimination, which could lead, which seems present in Obergefell, but would lead us to have a very different assessment potentially of how the court should reason about questions of affirmative action, for instance. Larry. I think an overall um, couple of themes that's permeated small The fact that um, you've been talking and talking so well about um, social change, which has uh, received uh, some formal recognition, acceptance, mm -hmm. Approval, um, which has been singled out uh, over the years uh, as um, um, within the purview of the American legal standards. And I'm wondering if you could, any of you, Acceptance uh, has it simply always been there, 
but undiscovered? Uh, is it merely um, a recognition of um, the ebb and flow of human beings living together and at different times finding different arrangements um, practical, effective, useful, and so forth? There are many other potential sources of that turn to acceptance. Uh, I just wonder what your reference points were. I could, I could start by, so, I mean, that, that's sort of a huge question that I also find intensely interesting, um, and in some ways takes us back to the beginning of the day uh, when Professor Kennedy was speaking about um, why loving didn't have the kinds of consequences we might expect, and also thinking about the court as an institution that understands, that has this particular role orientation. Um, and I think, um, I think we can't understand where we are right now and how we've gotten here without an understanding of the mobilizations that produced the conflict itself. Uh, and I don't think there's some natural path that leads us to be what we would take to be more decent, but instead um, fights over what it means to uh, have particular values in our society. And I think in some ways the today's juxtaposition and this panel's juxtaposition of the story of loving and where we sit now on questions of race equality and the story of Obergefell and where we sit on LGBT equality show that actually mm -hmm. there's not a, a clear upward trajectory that continues, but instead these things get fought over and the cases provide resources, but not answers as to where we go. Um, and so I see Obergefell and Windsor and the court's decisions as intervening in a long-standing conflict. What sometimes can be missing from discussions like this is that the Supreme Court is not the, the most important actor in my mind, nor does this court intervene in debates that haven't been long-standing society-wide debates, at least when it comes to these kinds of contested decisions. And so Windsor and Obergefell are the court intervening uh, after a very long fight that wasn't actually only at the state level, but started at the local level in, you know, in the 70s and 80s when uh, LGBT people were fighting for some relationship rights um, that continued throughout the lesbian baby boom and the HIV AIDS crisis, in which questions about the humanity of this population were put to the public and people started devoting resources to fighting over those questions. And opponents also devoted, devoted resources to fighting over those questions. And the court is an actor in that broader society-wide debate. And the decisions, I think, give us resources to continue that conflict in different forms and channel it in different directions, see Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, but are not resolving the particular debate. Um, but the justices themselves are shaped by having lived in the society that is having that specific debate. And in some ways, I mean, the question of backlash and Obergefell, is, it, it's interesting that the court itself shaped the context in which it intervened by denying cert in all of those circuit court decision, uh, circuit court cases, so that it could actually, it it's itself produced the map that looked more like Loving than it would have looked had it taken that first 10th Circuit case. Um, and 
must then understand itself as having some role to play in shaping that arena of conflict. But I don't see any of it as inevitable. Yeah. And I would add to that that um, it's really interesting in Obergefell, uh, the majority opinion has language about how uh, we've, we've kind of learned over time uh, through almost like this education pro educational process of learning and the the way that he, he that Kennedy frames it is that it is usually through or it's often through pleas and protests and so it's linking to what what Doug is saying in terms of a movement um, but think about the power in that and so I think a lot of this is about power because who has the ability to plea and protest um, and and so we might just we, we discover who's being oppressed uh, uh, through who has the resources to plea and protest, to bring cases for decades uh, at some point, to, to, to get the court's attention at some point. I mean, the, the movement avoided, you know, went through state courts first and um, avoided the federal courts until they, you know, we, the, there seemed to be some traction. And even within that movement, who has the power to fund that movement uh, and prioritize marriage? Um, for it is who can fund it, who can say, you know, and if, if that's how we, we define or decide what is justice, uh, I, I, fear for, I fear for us because, you know, uh, that's not necessarily a, a, a way to really identify what, what justice looks like. How, how, do we, how, do we, how do we rest on that and feel comfortable? I, I don't know. So I really struggle with that. But I thought it was really interesting in terms of him framing it that way and the, the, the majority framing it that way in the opinion. That's why I, don't, I think you don't see a lot of kids brought on behalf of, uh, cases brought on behalf of kids. Uh, because talking about a group that doesn't have the power to, to garner the resources that you need to, to have a, a, a significant movement. Now, there are some counterpoints to that, like the Children's March and, and the Civil Rights Movement. Um, but but I think I think of it as, as situated in, in who has the power to to protest um, at, at where we are in this juncture. So. so, what's driving acceptance? And I agree with everything that's been said right now. Um, I'll just add that you know I think huge drivers are media depictions, interpersonal contact. Um, but that all takes place in relation, I think, and is affected by litigation outcomes, right? So for example, to have interpersonal contact, people have to feel comfortable coming out, right? And one's ability to come out is affected by, uh, you know, whether you can march uh, related to like First Amendment claims, but also just feeling empowered by recent litigation victories. Um, so there's a relationship there. And I'll also add that I think that there is a legitimating function of cases like Obergefell. And I say that completely descriptively. I'm not, you know, that's commenting on whether or not the courts should have this function, but I think it does. And I'll just share with you one personal anecdote. Um, so I had been out to my extended family for a really long time, but the one person I didn't come out to explicitly was my grandmother. And I deferred to my, my mom on when, you know, we should come out to grandma um, because it, you know, she had some concerns, like grandma's too old and fragile, whatever. <laughs> I shouldn't dismiss it by saying whatever, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but finally, I was engaged to my then fiance, and um, everyone in the family was going to be at our wedding, like one weekend. But usually, at least one family member is with grandma on Saturday night. <laughs> so um, my aunts and uncles decided to launch an intervention and say, like, you know, to my mom saying, we really need to tell grandma. I think she'll be okay with this. And so I was not there for the conversation, but they, at dinner time, had a conversation with them telling, telling my grandmother um, that I was gay, I am gay, and was gonna have this um, 
wedding and her response, there are two parts of her response, she was like, why did you wait so long to tell me? First she said, I live in downtown New York. I see gay people all the time. Like, are you serious? You think I would have a problem with this? So that has to go to interpersonal contact. <laughs> but then she said, and it's legal now, duh. <laughs> she said all this in Chinese though. Um, but I read that as, wow, like she took something away from um, the change in New York's law at the time by saying like, hey, look, like we've come so far, there's something legitimate about, um, uh, about these, relationships now that even the state is recognizing it as such. For what that's worth. <laughs> Other questions? Um, is it Angel? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how can I take the, your arguments made about thinking more long-term and we've had an just talking to everything before we focus on just winning the case and kind of about the impact of the larger arguments. And for me, in, um, you can just put this in the hair and the Yeah, I, I, I just have early thoughts. I've been thinking about this question of how, um, I mean, I guess in some ways it could have gone in a direction where immutability was no longer uh, a, a, a factor and that clearly was something that was I felt was important in the LGBT cases was that if, it, if it's immutable um, or is it not immutable, you know, is it a choice, all those sorts of questions. Um, and I think it could have been, um, if that had been adopted, I do wonder what it would mean in the context of race, uh, since it was such an important criteria um, in establishing the kind of you know heightened uh, classifications. But I, in some ways, I guess the way that the court, and I don't know, I don't really know the answer, but the way that the court decided it by sidestepping um, the classifications route, um, uh, maybe it's still, immutability is still an important criteria and will continue to be so. Now I'm not saying that that's great either, right? I don't think it should have to be a choice or be immutable for you to have protections. Um, but I do think that the way the court decided it um, uh, alleviates that concern for now. I guess the question is, will we be back here on some other topic trying to push for a heightened classification for uh, uh, sexual orientation? Um, and I think once again, it'll raise that question of, of what, what might, might what might occur down the line. Um, in some ways though, I do think that, that this animus doctrine that's, that's developing, at least some people are saying is developing, um, is really fascinating. We can find animus in the court uh, against hippies and um, uh, against for LGBTs and for um, uh, persons with disabilities, mental disabilities, but we can't find animus in the race cases, just straight up Washington v. Davis animus. Um, I find that really intriguing and what is taking place when we talk about race in this country and that we can't get past some sort of barrier to, to recognize the animus or the intent that is there. 
Um, so I don't know if I answered your question. I think it's I'm kind of all over the place, but but I do think we have to keep our eye on that of, of if immutability is no longer a, a, a component or even political powerlessness. Um, what does that mean uh, uh, for the future of race race claims? Yeah. I think my two thoughts are one that there are, you know, implicit bias and systemic biases cannot easily be mapped onto purpose, no matter how broadly you expand that category or you expand the definition of purpose um, in a way that you're really inferring so much from effects that we should just call it <laughs> an effects mm -hmm. test, right? Just off the top of my head. Can I add a small point, which is I think we're about to get another example of what you're describing in the travel ban litigation, where purpose is at issue, and we're going to see the same kind of divide. I expect, I mean, the liberals on the Fourth Circuit, this was a 10-3 on banc panel decision, and the Fourth um, judges appointed by Democratic administrations found easily that there was animus in this case, and of course the conservative judges on the panel didn't, and they're all applying a purpose test. I think, I think there's something deeper there, obviously. Um, I'm sorry, there are other questions. Kim, sure. Uh, for anyone who wants to feel it, um, what about gender identity? Is that, I mean, uh, it's closely aligned in terms of uh, community and progressive thought, but uh, doctrinally, I mean, I'm nervous. Catherine mentioned the GG case. I was very nervous about that case. I think the way Kennedy reasons about sex and gender, well, so like Nguyen versus INS, the sort of 
his instincts about gender make me more skeptical uh, and he seems more invested in there being differences based on sex that matter, um, though Morales Santana from last term might shift some of that. Um, but I do think the gender identity claim has had success as a sex discrimination claim, um, uh, both as a constitutional matter and as a statutory matter, um, because and it's connected to a trait that already gets heightened scrutiny. I think the more interesting thing to follow are the arguments that are being made now, led I think by folks at GLAD in Boston, that um, courts should approach uh, trans as its own category that meets the criteria for heightened scrutiny, particularly in making claims about trans exclusions in federal law um, as being unconstitutional on equal protection grounds. And I mean, it poses for us these questions about what counts for thinking about what merits heightened scrutiny. The GLAD attorneys are making the arguments under the conventional reasoning, um, and um, it's unclear how courts are going to receive those arguments. Certainly, arguments around immutability get complicated by trans claims. But I, my reading of the sexual orientation cases is that um, while the, the court never took up the question, the lower courts that had had essentially said, we don't really care whether it's immutable as you might understand immutable, but instead what we care is that it's a core aspect of one's identity, which I think would easily map onto a gender identity claim. So I'd answer the question by looking at changes in kind of culture. Right. I've been pleasantly surprised by how fast um, media depictions of transgender and um, non-binary individuals has changed and improved over time, like much faster than I would have imagined 10 years ago. And so to the extent that we situate the courts in this larger cultural context, maybe that will affect the comfort level of judges um, coming out with more progressive decisions. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the first few cases used the animus doctrine I could see that being the way that it begins. So. Other questions? I think we have a few more minutes. Yeah, George. Um, so I would say that this panel is trying to see the parallels
Well, I mean, the, so the court hasn't taken the case that was put up to it on this question. Um, and I mean, I, I would like to have, uh, I like your optimism that, that it seems logical, but I think a lot of people are fighting fiercely over it right now. And I think it's plausible for centrist judges to issue decisions in which they don't read Title VII to reach the question of sexual orientation, even if they do for gender identity. So I, I think the seventh highly is a huge development, mm -hmm. but I, I'm not persuaded that it's going to become the law of the land, especially given that the 11th Circuit has come out the other way. The second circuit seems poised to stick potentially the other way. Um, so, so I think we could end up with a lot of different jurisdictions that have different rules applying to them. And I certainly think it's the case that Congress is not in a position to pass a law that includes sexual orientation. It'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of the anti-discrimination law project generally after Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, that might actually, it might ease some channels in some ways, at least at the state level. Um, but I think that it's, um, I think the gender identity question has have, had much more success under Title VII than the sexual orientation question. And the EEOC's ruling in Baldwin versus Fox, which said that sexual orientation discrimination is sex discrimination under mm -hmm. Title VII, is very important in lots of ways, but also not, it's not clear on what grounds this should actually be based. And there's association mm -hmm. discrimination cases that you can mm -hmm. speak to in that decision that I think are pretty mm -hmm. um, uh, brittle. Yeah, 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 I agree. I, I think that uh, the, I mean, the gender stereotyping argument might be successful in those cases. Um, although that's not really satisfying in all honesty for, for, for me in some ways because sexual orientation discrimination should be recognized as, as sexual orientation discrimination. I think there are ways that it plays out that don't necessarily have a gender element and it, and it should be recognized. I think, you know, the association arguments I don't love. Um, I feel like we're falling into that same trap of this really text-based formalistic argument uh, to try and achieve an, uh, the, the objective, but I think the, the litigants are doing the best they can with what they have uh, at the end of the day to, to try and, and uh, um, have it recognized without uh, Congress changing the, the, the text of the statute. So. I think the original question was framed in terms of specifically Obergefell. How does that relate to these Title VII cases? And unfortunately, doctrinally, there isn't much of a relationship because Obergefell completely dodged the sex discrimination question, and that is the centerpiece of the Title VII claims. I think we probably have more questions, but we are out of time. Uh, so if you'll join me in thanking our panelists.